Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back everyone to Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Dr. Abby Ross, physical therapist, vestibular physical therapist, and neuroclinical specialist. And I'm joined by Dr. Danny Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. Today, we have someone that we've recommended to many patients, and many patients have come back to us singing their praises. So everyone, welcome to the show, Dr. Shin Bay out of Texas. Thank you for having me. The new uh, migraine guru. Yes, <laughs> the migraine guru. So migraine only. <laughs> One of the first questions I always ask, like to ask our guests who are clinicians in this field is, what brought you to the vestibular world? And give us a little bit of background in how you got to where you are. Sure. So I've always found, you know, vertigo, dizziness, and eye movements to be quite fascinating, you know, even since medical school. It's like this one of those weird things you look at your life. There's something very, you know, interesting about this. It's fascinating, you know, and how you can localize it so beautifully. You know, if you see a, a particular type of nystagmus, it indicates something. If you see something, you know, with the eye movements that can localize to a part of the brainstem, the periphery. And so that was always very fascinating to me. And I think, you know, it's also slightly perverse in a way because, you know, I noticed that a lot of people fled from dizzy patients. They didn't want to deal with dizzy patients, didn't want to deal with vertigo, you know, couldn't wait to, uh, you know, ship them off to a different specialist. So that kind of drew me in. Um, I never realized that, you know, it could be a specialty in itself when I was in med school. And then, you know, as a resident, you know, I found it very actually rewarding in a way to see the dizzy patients, especially, you know, those with BPPV. You know, when you get called down in the ER in the middle of the night and, you know, somebody has BPPV and they're freaking out, they're not sure what's going on. And then you explain it to them, you treat it, they go home, you know, it's great. You know, it's very uh, rewarding when you actually can, uh, you know, make something better. Um, and then later in uh, residency, you know, I came to realize that, hey, there is a specialty in uh, within neurology. Some call it otoneurology, some call, call it uh, neurootology, you know, tomato, tomato. Same thing to me, right? But it's the, you know, subspecialty of neurology that deals with vertigo and dizziness. And so, you know, I decided to explore it further, you know, read up uh, Dr. Z's book, that wonderful book, you know, about eye movements. Um, you know, wanted to uh, rotate with uh, Dr. Z at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, <clears throat> my mentor at that time was uh, Elliot Froman who was uh, and one of the big names in uh, multiple sclerosis. But little did uh, anyone know that actually his fellowship was in dizziness and vertigo with Dr. Z initially. And uh, later on, you know, he went into multiple sclerosis. And so I asked him, you know, if we could, you know, how, how would I go about going to, to doing a fellowship in uh, vertigo and dizziness? And so he proposed something very interesting. He said, how about we do a three-center fellowship. So, you know, do a little bit of uh, multiple sclerosis in uh, Dallas, go to Hopkins, some dizziness, and then go up to New York and do some um, and multiple sclerosis, neuro-ophthalmology mixture of the two. You know, but he was collaborating at that time with uh, Dr. Peter Calabrese at Hopkins and with uh, Dr. Baltza in uh, Penn. And then Dr. P uh, Baltza and Dr. Galetta moved to NYU. So it was the three centers. So I was like, hey, I had no commitments in Texas at that time own nothing except a little car. So I'm like, 
let's do it. <laughs> so, you know, began that little journey. So eight months I spent in Dallas, um, and then after that, eight months in Baltimore, and eight months in New York. It was fantastic. Uh, when I came back to Dallas, I thought, you know, my specialty is just going to be, you know, mainly multiple sclerosis and, you know, do some dizziness on the side. Um, because I thought, yeah, you know what, there probably isn't, aren't that many patients, you know, with dizziness. Little did I know. <laughs> and then, you know, and later, you know, as I went through, uh, you know, my career, I was like, oh my goodness, there is a huge demand for people, you know, for people with a uh, specialty in uh, vertigo and dizziness. And whereas, you know, there were quite a few other MS uh, experts out there. So, you know, I left MS behind, focused on dizziness and vertigo, and here I am. That's amazing. Even just the residencies that you had lined up is like kind of like a dream come true to have a little bit of a hand in all of those and with such great people too. That's amazing. really, really cool. Dr. Z is amazing. <laughs> Learn something new every time I talk to him. I can only imagine. <laughs> those are the best type of mentors. Was it Dr. Z who who used the quote? I saw this on on, I don't know if it was your website or somewhere I read that one of your mentors had said it's not about being right it's about getting it right was that dr b no that's uh dr froman actually oh different yeah. a that different makes a lot of sense yeah for especially for dizziness for vertigo you know a lot of times you know we have to really get it right if we don't get it right we can't treat them good point that's uh, so true in this field, especially, you know, you had mentioned that sometimes you can really localize what it is, but I'm sure a lot of patients that come to you, well, actually, I know because the ones I have sent to you have been to many people yep. already, many healthcare providers already. So when a patient comes to you, they've seen five plus healthcare providers how are you dissecting their history to really localize or confirm or or um, conform what it is or and what it isn't so that you know what path to take them on intervention wise? I always try to approach it from a very neutral standpoint. I try not to be biased by previous diagnoses. So, you know, when I ask the patient, take their history, you know, I try at my best to go come in from, you know, an angle where, you know, as if I don't know anything. And I want them to tell me the, about their history right from the beginning. And that way, you know, I'm more confident in the diagnosis towards the end of the uh, visit, you know, rather than taking a diagnosis that somebody else gave or the patients, you know, a lot, but a lot of times the patients are right. Though. You know, sometimes they read up and then they believe that they have a particular diagnosis and want to ask me about it. So rather than try to fit the symptoms into a particular diagnosis, I like to go through that history, get all the symptoms first, and then, you know, come up with a diagnosis from there. I like that approach. And that's very similar to, I think, what we take as physical therapists, because by the time somebody comes and see us, it's been recommended as almost like a last resort. And Absolutely. they've been through multiple people and every, every doctor just ends up saying, why don't you just try PT, try vestibular yeah. therapy, let me know how it goes. <laughs> and at that point, we kind of have to take everything that they have to um, say with their history and their diagnosis, kind of put it aside for a second, do our own evaluation to see how the patient's feeling that day in that moment with their symptoms, and then kind of make a clinical judgment from there. A lot of the times it's not a matter of what the diagnosis is, but just finding the area of dysfunction to help treat, but then also mm -hmm. educate the patient about that multidisciplinary approach. I have to say too, you know, you had mentioned that not a lot of people like to treat dizzy, 
but there are a very, very few amount of people who like to treat dizzy migraine patients, I will say. <laughs> so you've got, a very, you've got a very small specialty in it's <laughs> itself, but it's amazing and we need more people like you because like you said, this is a big, big common issue. And it's actually getting to the point where the diagnosis of vestibular migraine is starting to um, out-track BPPV for lead diagnosis of dizziness. They're finding that a lot of people have been misdiagnosed over the years. And now that we've got better diagnostic criteria, we're able to identify them a little bit better. And I, I kind of want to ask too, how has your practice changed since the beginning of this pandemic and the lifting of some of these rules on telehealth and telemedicine? Yep. So there was I, we did some telemedicine before that in small numbers, you know, some out-of-state patients, you know, Texas is a big state. So, you know, a lot of uh, people live like, you know, really far from Dallas. And so, you know, we kind of dabbled in telemedicine before that, but not in, you know, a big scale, partly because, you know, insurance reimbursement was, you know, not very good. And a lot of insurance companies wouldn't you know even think about, you know, tele. I think the pandemic did force telemedicine to the forefront and, you know, really made it into an important issue and an important way to deliver care. Um, you know, initially, of course, you know, there is that discomfort that is like, you know, if you don't examine a patient, you know, how can you really come up with a diagnosis? But then, you know, if you think about it, most of our dizzy patients, it's history, history, history. Everything is in the history. You know, if you most of 90% of the time, I think by the time you're done with the history, you kind of know what's going on. And then you do the exam and then, you know, just to support what you find and, you know, make sure that there's no other issues going on. 10% of the time you get surprised, you examine them, you find some weird nystagmus or something strange on the exam, you're like, oh, maybe there's something else going on as well, right? But I think those, so those patients, you know, after you take a good history, but most of the patients who have come to see me have had VNGs done. MRIs, VNGs, uh, audiograms done. And so, you know, that also takes a lot of uh, away from the need to see the, uh, the patient in person. You know, now if they had some findings in the VNG that was abnormal, let's say they found like downbeat nystagmus, for example, and then the suspicion of a cerebellar issue comes up, then those I try to schedule them as an inpatient. You know, so initially everything was tele, and then as we kind of got used to the pandemic, we we're like, okay, you know, as long as we wear masks, you know, we had like a little half day per week where we come in in person. And so those patients that I felt, you know, there's something else that could be going on. You know, I insisted, you know, come in in person, you know, see me in person, do an exam, and then, you know, figure things out from there. There have been a few that I've had to bring in, you know, not many, thank God for that. Uh, but there have been a few, usually the uh, cerebral ataxia patients that we have had to bring in and say, yeah, I didn't need to examine you. We need to get a few more labs just to make sure, you know, see what's going on with the cerebellum. Um, but, you know, going forward, I think, telemedicine you know with they will keep paying for it the insurance companies but i think it's here to stay you know what i find more interesting which you two can uh, you know chip uh, tell me a little bit about is i've heard of vestibular therapy being done by telemedicine now yes actually you know it's funny you say that because we were participating in telehealth pre-pandemic as well and the main reason was for access to care so, you know, you you have a small, in, in the grand scheme of things, a small number of clinicians who specialize in this type of care. So if you're not in a main hub, 
chances that you're seeing a true vestibular focused provider is slim to none, right? Yep. So we did it so that we could reach those clients. And I've told this story before on our on our podcast, but when I was working at NYU and actually I had some of Dr. Balser's and some of Dr. Glada's patients before. Um, but when I was working there, we were having patients come from all over. And I thought to myself, how crazy is this that people with vertigo are getting on planes, getting on subways, getting in taxis and coming to see us? This is crazy. So when I moved to Florida, I decided to kind of venture a different way and see if I could help people virtually. I first did it with uh, um, a friend of a friend, basically pro bono kind of trial and error. And it worked beautifully. So then we expanded it. But like you said, you already said so much of it is in the history and it's the same for vestibular rehab. When you see a patient, I could spend an hour on the history if I wanted to, you know, unless it's something very straightforward. I am asking more questions and more questions and more questions and diving a little deeper until I kind of pinpoint what I think is causing it and then determining what path of treatment I need to take. But the other part of vestibular rehab that works so beautifully with telehealth is that so much of vestibular rehab actually relies on the home program. Yep. So why not start this program in the patient's home? They have to be safe to do what I'm asking them to do anyway. The only difference would be that I might take a few more steps in between. I might not go um, as challenging as I would in the clinic on some of the exercises. I might you know, space it out a little bit, make sure they're comfortable and safe to do something on their own before I I push them a little bit further. But it's really the same as in-person care. Mm. The other I will thing say, oh, I'll just jump in real quick, Abby. Yeah. I was just going to say that in the beginning, when I first met Abby, I was in complete disbelief. I thought she was crazy. Um, I, <laughs> I came... get that a lot, Dr. Bay. I'm crazy. <laughs> I was like, you have to put your hands on a patient in order to really get a full comprehensive evaluation as to what's going on. But you know, even to something that you alluded to, a lot of patients come to us with testing done already yep. and history is everything. And it also actually kind of shaped my evaluation a little bit differently in the clinic because even with the pandemic, I think it reinforced um, having to see patients over telehealth and telemedicine that I don't need to do every test under the sun. You know, we get a great history. We can do a couple of things to reinforce what is going on. And then it all comes down to the consistency of the home program. So it's been really interesting to see how this has kind of done a really great shift in care for our patients, but also for access. And I am so, so, so happy that we have more access to people like you um, to kind of send patients and especially for vestibular migraine patients. You know, by the time we start to see them on tele telehealth and telemedicine, we have a really good idea once they start talking of what's going on. And we don't have to do much to trigger those symptoms and uh, start to set them on the path of finding the right multidisciplinary approach. Ooh. So it's been interesting. It's been a really good mix, I think, of uh, in clinic and out of clinic with telemedicine. Abby's you know, saw this way ahead in the future. She got her business started in 2019. So she was ahead of the bar on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both. But <laughs> along these lines, Dr. Bay, we medication prescription is out of our scope of practice as vestibular therapists. How does that work for you if a client or patient is out of state? Can you still prescribe medication? You can. So we, we can. Um, Non-controlled substances, we can. Controlled substances, the DEA doesn't approve of that. So uh, I can prescribe that across state lines. Um, 
therapy is a little bit tricky. If you want to, if I want to prescribe like physical therapy, vestibular therapy to somebody out of state, that's tricky um, because I think like with Medicare rules, you have to specify like the exact place and everything. So it becomes tricky with that one. Ordering tests can also be a little bit, you know, tricky there. You know, they need the order and they need to bring it to somewhere. But, you know, with electronic prescribing um, medication, non-controlled medications, it's actually quite easy to do, you know, which they have a, um, the pharmacy can receive electronic prescriptions. It works quite well. That's great. Yep. I do want to say with medication, um, you know, a lot of, well, we've had comments in our past episodes that people are really grateful we talk about medication because I think there's some stigma around people trying to avoid medication or want to stay mm -hmm. off medication. But for some people, that is the missing link for their symptoms is to get them on the right medication and the right type and dosage and whatnot. Um, would you say that you have a specific uh, approach to medication um, when it comes to patients? Do you have like a kind of like a, a decision tree that you follow when it comes to trying medications or it's all dependent on patient to patient? Correct. I think it depends on the patient. So, you know, the I don't like to follow like algorithms. I say you have to start with this and going to go to this and this and this because, you know, I think everyone is different and everyone responds to medications differently, right? I always tell patients, you know, there's no way I can predict which one would work for you. There's no way I can predict which one would cause side effects, right? Um, so I think that to try and based, uh, we do it, I do it based on, you know, what they prefer, um, their response to previous medications. And of course, you know, any comorbid issues going on, you know, because if you, for example, you know, if you say you have to start off with a medication like amitriptyline, for example, right? Now that one causes, you know, drowsiness. It's great if you have insomnia, but if you don't have insomnia and then you're worried about, you know, the hangover effect the next day, may not be such a good idea. And then there's, of course, the risk of weight gain with um, amitriptyline. You know, a lot of people, you know, the moment I mentioned weight gain, they go, nope, don't even talk about it anymore. Or, you know, and then, you know, if they have constipation or trouble with urination, then the uh, medications like amitriptyline or triptyline could be that work. Um, <clears throat> propanolol is another one that's commonly used for migraine, but you know, if they're already running kind of low uh, heart rate, blood pressures on the low side, may not be such a good idea. Or if they're really like active younger patients, you know, you put them on propanolol, then their exercise tolerance goes right down. Um, Topamax, a lot of people like the top, uh, like Topamax, a lot of people hate Topamax. Um, you know, it causes the weight loss. Some people love that, um, you know, but it can cause a lot of, you know, cognitive issues. You know, there's a tiny risk of kidney stones. So if they have, already have kidney problems, history of kidney stones, probably not a good idea to put them on Topamax. So I think it has to be individualized. Um, you know, I do have patients too who just want to try the supplement. You know, I think that's fine. Give it a try. You know, but now I always tell uh, our patients say, you know, anything that you try, whether it's medications, supplements, dietary changes, um, it takes about two months before you can see some benefit usually. So, you know, whatever you do, got to be patient with it. I was just about to ask you that. You nailed it, though. You know, so many patients, because we see the patients more often than typically the physician does. They say, I've been on this for a week and I feel X, Y, Z, I hate it. And I'm always saying to them, you know, you're not going to know if you start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. It's really a trial and error. And unfortunately, you've got to go through the, the battlegrounds to see what works and what doesn't work. So two months is about your range to determine when they can, when they should come back to you and say, oh, I really like this or this isn't working out. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. So two months for efficacy. 
Um, but if it's, of course, like some bad side effect, then, you know, we have to stop it sooner, right? Um, you know, if it's just a mild side effect, I try to tell my patients, you know, try to tough it out a little bit, you know, power through, you know, put up with it. Usually that gets better. If you feel like, you know, just a little funny on it, you know, just feel off, you know, put up with it, try to uh, power through. But if it's something really bad, you know, like say, you know, you can't wake up in the morning, you're crawling, you know, to the bathroom in the morning, then we'll try you on something else. Yeah, the Dizzy Cook, of course, we've speak, spoken to her on our episodes prior, Alicia Wolf. Yep. And we were talking about how important it is to have that relationship with your physician. That's you're more like a team. It's mm -hmm. your, your feedback is so important in determining or in the physician determining what path to go down. Do you stay on this medication? Do you try another one? Do you just try supplements? Do you get off medication altogether? Your feedback as a patient is so, so important. So I thought yep. that was a really good point that the Dizzy Cook made. Absolutely. And I tell my patients the same thing. You know, um, I will adjust the medication based on what you tell me. You know, is this dose doing it for you? Is there still a bit of dizziness left? Do we need to go up on the dose? Are you happy at this dose? You know, side effects, do we need to go down a little bit? You know, it depends. You know, all, all of it is on feedback. And dizziness is so subjective. So we need that feedback. Well, I like I liked uh, everything that you just said when we started talking about medications. It kind of hits it on the head that everybody's different yep. just because what worked for one person doesn't work for another and everybody should be individualized. So even those of you who are listening that has gone to a doctor and say, well, I start all my patients on this. You might want to reconsider you know, your approach and, and relationship with that doctor to kind of find a, maybe a better fit. You want to find something that works for you. Your comorbidities is going to be different for everybody. And there are, you know, uh, if we haven't mentioned, mentioned this in this episode, but previous, you know, your book, Victory Over Migraine, you've mentioned a lot of different things that actually I had questions about before purchasing your book, um, like using the cephaly and other types of approaches and, and devices out there um, for patients that are suffering from migraine. Is there any one particular device or thing that you like that you've noticed has helped patients or is it again different from person to person? I think it's different and the other thing to consider you know we forgot to talk about is cost. Cost, cost, cost is a big one. The devices can work. You know the main thing is I think with Cephaly we I've used it more because it's more accessible right I would have wanted to use Gamma Core more, but then, you know, the insurance issues around Gamma Core made it very difficult to prescribe. Now it's easier. They have a, you know, I don't know whether I can talk about it. Let's talk about it. Okay. Right. So they have the new pilot program where, you know, the cost is much lower, right? You know, it's still, there's a monthly cost, but it's much, much lower. And, uh, um, you know, it's far more accessible now. So I've been, you know, using it more with my patients. In the past, it was just too difficult to use. Um, so, you know, I'm waiting to hear back on the Gamma Core. It can potentially work. There was that study in um, Europe that did you know, triple PD patients, and it showed that over two months, the Gamma Core did help. Um, you know, the cephaly, I'm finding that it does help too. Not everyone, but that's everything, right? There's no nothing that works 100%. You know, so cephaly can work. The gamma core can work. You know, the one that I'm, you know, very uh, interested in this year is, um, I think it's called a relivion. So it does trigeminal and occipital stimulation at the same time. Oh, so, interesting. Yep. Exactly. Depending on, you know, what they come up with, whether it's going to be like a rescue treatment or whether it's a preventive treatment, you know, whether they'll just let you, you know, do whatever you want with the device, you know, we'll see how it goes. Right. It could be something quite interesting, especially, you know, a lot of our dizzy patients have 
neck pain. Yep. So it could be a, quite a useful. Yeah, absolutely. And there are other approaches too, as far as um, Botox and CGRP yep. injections and things along those lines. Like it feels like that there are a a million things out there that people can tap into. And part of the, the trickiness of treating migraine, especially vestibular migraine is finding what works just because it almost is like a rabbit hole of so many different things. Correct. Yep. You know, it's good on one hand that, you know, we have so many choices now. Um, the thing is, you know, to tell our patients too, there's no one, there's, there's no magic bullet, right? A lot of them say, so okay, what is the one that works the best? There is none that works the best, unfortunately. All of them can work. If not, I wouldn't offer them to you. Um, but, you know, there isn't one that works, you know, the best of the lot from what I've seen. There's some that work eh, not as good. Let's just say like, you know, for example, with vestibular migraine, the SSRIs, right? They can help, especially if there's a lot of triple PD. But SSRIs in general, you know, for migraine, not as strong evidence for them. Yep. So, you know, those I tend to keep a little bit, you know, lower on the list. Um, but the rest of them, you know, all of them could potentially work. The CGRP inhibitors that you brought up, you know, those can work too. You know, issue is, you know, you have to wait, right? You can take, you know, up to six months for you to see, you know, benefit from them. Um, and, you know, I always tell the patients don't give up. You know, once you started it, you have to wait, you know, just give it about six months, you know, before we judge whether it's working or not. Um, you know, it doesn't work um, from what I've seen. There's no studies in vestibular migraine yet with the CGRP inhibitors, but with migraine themselves, you know, it works very similar to, from what I've seen, the other migraine treatments too. So, you know, it's not to say that one is superior compared to the other. Yeah, and you brought up another good point, and that's persistence in trialing these treatments. Can we go back to the devices though? Can you sure. explain a little bit to our audience how these work or what they do? So the cephaly device, it stimulates the trigeminal nerve. So as part of the ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal, the one that travels in the forehead that's responsible for headache and um, sensation over the brain itself. Um, we think that it could potentially help with people who have vestibular migraine and dizziness because, you know, the trigeminal nerve is intimately connected with your vestibular nerve. You know, that's part of the pathway is, you know, telling your vestibular system what your eyes are doing. So if you move your eyes a certain way, it, that's how your vestibular system interacts with uh, the eyes. Um, interesting studies have shown that trigeminal stimulation can alter nystagmus. Right? So, you know, people who have... Um, congenital nystagmus, if you stimulate the trigeminal uh, system, you know, you actually can alter the nystagmus. And then you know, there was a study that I think in migraine patients, you know, noxious trigeminal stimulation also can alter or cause nystagmus in these patients. So there is a connection between the two systems. The cephaly device, I believe, taps into that connection. Um, another way that it can potentially, you know, help theoretically, right, is, you know, that it's it's been shown that the cephalate device can alter, I think, activity within the anterior cingulate cortex. And that is the area of the brain that is, you know, very active, I think, in triple PD, right, where, you know, you become like very 
you know, vigilant about many of the symptoms, you know, become hyper aware of, you know, certain visual stimuli, certain things that make you dizzy. So that could potentially be the effect from the cephalate device. Um, the gamma core works very differently. So the gamma core, or it's a vagus nerve stimulator. So it goes on the neck, stimulates the cutaneous, um, through, through the skin rather, cutaneously, it stimulates the uh, vagus nerve as it travels from your gut up to the brainstem. Um, the vagus nerve is an interesting one. There's lots of connections with the trigeminal system, the vestibular system. You know, that's why, you know, when you get vertigo, you vomit. You feel really sick. Some people get diarrhea. They get really sweaty with it. You know, it's all the vagus nerves uh, connection. So vagus stimulation, I think, works predominantly through that. So it goes to the vestibular system directly and to the trigeminal system. Um, the cephalid device goes through the trigeminal system, I think, to the vestibular system. And that's using like um, almost like electrical stimulation, like a TENS unit type of a thing, right? So I know the gamma core goes over the neck, cephalase is over the head, and then um, the other devices back in the occipital region, right? The um, gamma core, I don't think it's a TENS. You know, I forget exactly, you know, the, all the uh, details about it, like how it stimulates and all that, but the cephalase is a TENS. That one is a TENS unit that goes in the forehead. And then I think the Relivion, if I remember correctly, the one that goes in the front and back is, I think it's also a TENS. I could be wrong, but I think it's also a TENS device. Very cool. Yeah, very cool stuff. So what, um, at what point are you suggesting that a patient would trial one of these? Depending on their preference. So, you know, if a patient has, like, say, you know, if they want to try from the get-go, I'm open to that. These devices are really safe. Um, you know, absolutely, you can start off with the devices. Yeah? Or, you know, later on, if they've tried a number of medications and they've had a lot of side effects to the medications and they're saying, done with medications, you want to try the devices? I say, go for it. Yeah. Can I change gears a little bit? Uh, we... I, I want to go back to testing. Um, I kind of want to know what you look for in testing. Is there anything that you pick up on migraine patients that would be abnormal in VNGs or anything else that might pop up um, that you might order? You can get some forms of nystagmus for sure. You know, definitely you can get some unusual types of nystagmus. Sometimes it's not very specific types of nystagmus, like, you know, can get a little bit of a positional nystagmus. That, from what I remember correctly, if I remember correctly, you know, hyperventilation-induced nystagmus, the positional nystagmus, um, nystagmus with head shaking, those you I tend to see quite a bit with um, people with vestibular migraine. Even if you examine them, you know, in the interictal phase, you know, not during an attack, you can see some uh, nystagmus. Um, you know, most of the time, they won't even complain about dizziness or vertigo. You know, you just lay them back, see the nystagmus, you know, put them on the goggles to see the nystagmus. But um, so that's, yeah, not too specific. Some have, I've seen people who have upbeat nystagmus, have some downbeat nystagmus, um, you know, some very non-specific, you know, geotropic or apogeotropic type of nystagmus. Sometimes you see nystagmus only in one position and not in another position, which like not too specific. Um, you know, there have been a few that, you know, you do see the nystagmus when they're upright and then, you know, you move to what, you move your finger around and, oh, the stagmas going on there. So usually in those cases, you know, you have to I take a closer look at them and say, yeah, make sure we get the MRI, uh, make sure, you know, we have certain labs done, you know, let's just say if it's downbeat nystagmus, then, you know, I make sure that, you know, all the causes of, you know, cerebellar stuff we look into. That makes me feel a whole lot better because since I've been practicing and using goggles, I have noticed that in my migraine or suspected migraine patients, 
you can elicit this weird nystagmus. It's it's something that you can identify in certain tests if you're looking for something specifically, but it can change throughout the evaluation. It might change from visit to visit. I, I see was a just ton. Say, does yes. anyone else see it changing? I'm like, yes. hold on, did I not see this right the last time? I'll see. I'll see upbeat. Uh, usually, a lot of upbeat nystagmus. I have one patient, and I know she wouldn't be um, she wouldn't be upset if I shared her story, but her nystagmus was so almost dead on of looking like BPPV, it was misdiagnosed for the longest time. She would only get this torsional upbeat nystagmus in like a Dick's Hall Pike on one side, hmm. but then it would reverse if we got her onto her opposite side. So it would kind of go and she was a little vertiginous and we had all these other issues, but her history was screaming migraine. And it wasn't until like we, we started with the BPPV as recommended by her referring doctor. But after a couple of months, we we're like, I really think this is not right. We should really attack the migraine aspect of things. And once we went that direction she started feeling better but i think that it's worth it to mention this to people who are maybe just practicing or just getting into vestibular therapy and evaluation using infrared goggles is you will find a really complicated eval don't overcomplicate a potentially simple situation um i'll have people say oh it's definitely bbv but it's a posterior canal cupulolithiasis or i'll make it some really crazy thing to explain the type of nystagmus they're seeing during testing when really it could just be migraine activity which is that's true. That's true. Um, there was like, uh, we did. I did a write up. I think on uh, one of the patients. So in between exams, she would have I think geotropic nystagmus when you did the uh, supine roll test, and but no vertigo, no dizziness. Then during her migraine attack, it would reverse direction. Oh, wow. when you examined her, you did the same test. So and I was lucky enough that I managed to catch her like twice during a migraine attack. Like, yes. <laughs> Very unusual. But, you know, the thing is, you know, the whole the nystagmus would persist as long as you kept the head in the position. And she would have vertigo, too. You turn the head to the right, to the left, she tells you it's spinning. And then you see the nystagmus going. And then, you know, between exams, it will, it will sorry, between attacks, it will reverse the direction completely. Yep. I think Not you guys, you know, yeah, you guys are the ones that pick it up all the time. You know, like her, yeah. the vestibular therapist was the one who said, this is not BPPV, then you know, it means neurologist. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty wild, but not to complicate things further, but you can also indeed have vestibular migraine and BPPV. Absolutely. So, what are like, some, yeah. what yep, are some other layering conditions? Yep, you know, some dogs have ticks, some. <laughs> <laughs> what what are some other layering diagnoses that you see with migraine? Because I know migraine and veneers go hand in hand sometimes. Um, migraine and, and 3PD, migraine and BPPV. Like, is there one that's more common than the other? Like, what do you see a lot of combos of? A lot of so BPPV is definitely there. Triple PD is there. Motion sickness is there as well. Um, you can MDDS, another one that's you know quite uh, you know a lot of people a lot of people with MDDS also have a history of migraine or have a current diagnosis of migraine. Um, other ones like say men Meniere's disease, you know, we talk about that quite a bit. It's not as common, or maybe you know we're just under recognizing it. Not as common, you know, as the other ones. You know, you can have you know, migraine, the headache type of migraine with vestibular migraine too. So I do have a group of patients who just have who have both. They had bad attacks with the headaches, and then they have attacks with vertigo. Um, and I think that's pretty much it off the top of my head. I can't think of any other 
you know, vestibular diagnoses. Chiari, sometimes you tend to pick that up, you know, Chiari malformation, but a lot of times it's an incidental finding. Do you think people who are migraine patients or more prone to migraines are more likely to develop something like MDDS? Which is malvated Markman syndrome, we should say. Yep. <laughs> so yes, definitely. The, the incidence of um, migraine among people with MDDS is definitely much higher than that of the general population. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I worked in clinic, we sometimes as vestibular therapists were sort of a dumping ground for anyone with dizziness. And I was curious in your background with MS, if someone did complain of dizziness, what was your approach to trying to manage that? So same thing, figure out what is causing the dizziness first. And <clears throat> we was doing this, I think I have about close to 80 patients who have MS and who came to me with dizziness and vertigo, the most common diagnosis, vestibular migraine <laughs> and triple PD and then BPPV. Like, okay. <laughs> Only in a few of them that the, uh, you can actually you know, draw a link between the MS and the attacks of uh, vertigo. So, you know, like they have like a brainstem plaque, for example, you can see it there. Oh, okay. You have a brainstem plaque and, you know, the description of the attacks, you know, not really like consistent with that or migraine or anything, then you're like, hmm, that's the one. I was going to, I was, you kind of hit it right on the head. Um, but I was going to say, is it a lot less common to see MS with just a presentation of dizziness? I, you don't, we kind of are told to screen for it. And one of the things we look, we look for is just a pure torsional nystagmus as being a feature that is pretty common to patients with MS. Is that correct? But not something I've ever seen in isolated situation since I've been practicing. I think it varies so much. It depends on what, because MS can hit anywhere in the brain stem, right? So it depends on where it hits that, you know, the type of nystagmus that you get. Well, Sometimes if you hit at the uh, MLF, then you get, you know, internuclear ophthalmoplegia. And if you hit, you know, uh, the middle middle cerebellar peduncle or the uh, superior cerebellar peduncle, you get one type of nystagmus. If you hit in the uh, pons, you get one. Midbrain, you get different nystagmus. Medulla, you get a different type of nystagmus. So it depends where the um, lesions are. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So interesting, though. I mean just the puzzle pieces that you have to put together to figure out what intervention to take. And along those lines, if you think about what diagnoses you're figuring out for a patient, who are you typically referring to vestibular therapy and who are you holding off on? So the if you talk about like just vestibular migraine, then most patients, you know, when I first see them, they are too dizzy to go for vestibular therapy. You know, they, I learned that early on. So I, you know, I was like sending people to vestibular therapy early on. And this one of the patients told me, you know, after vestibular therapy, they had to just sit in their car and cry before they can drive home. I was like, oh, better hold back. Um, we are mean. So, <laughs> but, you know, I tell the patients, you know, if it's uh, vestibular, th the exercises are not at least uncomfortable, too easy for you. Well, so, <laughs> Um, I tend to hold off now a little bit until, you know, if they are like really the hot migraine brain is just too excitable, then I like, you know, get, get you on the right medication first. Let's calm things down a little bit and we'll see how you do. If you still have, you know, this head motion induced type of dizziness, you know, very sensitive to like visual stimuli, then, yep, you know, I'll send you off to uh, vestibular therapy, get some things done. Um, triple 
treatments. You know, from the get-go, we can send people for uh, vestibular therapy with starting the medications, or if they prefer just to do vestibular therapy, no medications, we can do that. MDDS, I think, is a trickier one. Mm -hmm. um, I, Y'all can tell me more. But I found, from what I've seen so far, just regular MDDS, regular MDDS, motion-triggered MDDS, no history of you know vestibular migraine, you know, or no features of like triple PD going with it. I found that they're not as responsive to vestibular therapy. What have you all found? No, this is much more difficult to treat. Um, and the research in it, there's more that came out recently. Um, I know Dr. Dai up in New York did a, a lot of work on that and came up with a very specific protocol. I remember being at the research uh, uh, conference up in Mount Sinai, I think back in 2019 it was. They explained the protocol and made my, my own head spin. I'm like, this would be very hard to replicate in the clinic. I don't think that this is something that I'd be able to do. And this is why they have their program where people with MDDS go up there for two weeks to undergo treatment. You know, it, it, we approach it like a triple PD um, with people that have a, this increased motion sensitivity. And we kind of work on habituation, adaptation. But again, it's very difficult to kind of uh, get those patients to respond like we'd like them to. Um, so it's definitely not an easy diagnosis. I think it more often than not, though, if they are seeing us, it's not just MDDS. It, it is, like you said, MDDS, 3PD, that type of situation. And, and, and you know, we've talked about this, too, but sometimes just ed educating patients can go a long way. If they don't understand what's happening, why it's happening, how it started, Etc. You know, sometimes just sitting down with them and explaining to them their vestibular system, the impact it has on their everyday life, why we do the exercises we do, what's a good sign if, if you respond this way to an exercise, do we think that this is the route we need to go? You know, it's um, sometimes relieving just talking to someone. And I've actually gotten that feedback some from some patients that I've sent to you. They were so relieved that you spoke to them, you had a conversation with them, you took a good history with them, that they immediately felt comfortable in your care. Yep. The illness uncertainty, I think that one, you know, plays a big role in a lot of um, chronic diseases, especially, yep. and, you know, particularly like dizziness, vertigo, you know, that they bounce from person to person. No one can really explain the symptoms to them. They just get called vertigo. And, um, you know, I think having a diagnosis, something to focus your energy on, something to read up about, I think that also takes a lot of the uh, uncertainty and anxiety away from things. Well, you know, I think one of the biggest pieces of education that has come out recently is your book. Once again, what what uh, led you to write this? Like, I mean, it is the most comprehensive workup of everything migraine, vestibular migraine, A to Z, medications, devices, like how to go into your doctor's appointment. I mean, everything. When did you start writing this and what led you to do this? So it's, I think the idea came from, um, I had to write a review for the uh, Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology about vestibular migraine. Um, so it, I think got me started to, I started to think when I was writing the review, I was like, you know what, you know, rather than just putting this and say on PubMed, you know, you have to have a Subscription, uh, subscription to something, you know, and only, you know, professionals can read it. You know, I thought, you know, patients would benefit from this quite a bit. You know, there's so much to teach them and so little time that we have in clinic, you know, and when you see them, you can only, you know, spend so much time with them, right? Um, and so, actually, I began writing at the beginning of the pandemic. 
Like, How did you get that done? Yeah, I was like, couldn't go, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. So, you know, <laughs> just at home, we're like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been it. writing the book for about 10 years now. I'm like, I'm shocked. I'm so impressed. <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, I have to do something. I'm not going to go crazy if I just sit around and do nothing, you know, to finish everything on Netflix already. Right. Like, time, <laughs> time to do some work. <laughs> and so uh, you know, I took the stuff from the um, review and I was like, you know, we can expand a lot on it. And so, you know, started that process. <laughs> well, it's amazing. It's definitely one of the things I recommend to patients. I, I usually dip their toes in with the, uh, it's more than a uh, migraine uh, article by Dr. Teixito and Dr. John Kerry. And then I said, but listen, this is just, this is just a little tease. What you really want to get is Dr. Bay's book, Victory Over Migraine. Because again, A to Z, I have so many patients who are very type A about what this migraine journey is going to look like and they want to know everything. And yeah. I'm grateful for it because they come into me and they're like, what about this gamma core thing? I'm like, the what? I don't know. Uh, let me look, I'll look into it. And I'll get back to you. Uh, so something like this has been essential for me as a clinician. Uh, so I recommend to our listeners, if you're a clinician, if you're a patient, it definitely needs to be checked out. It's on Amazon. We'll link it in the show notes. It's been a lifesaver and congrats on this book. This is amazing. I have this, I have Alicia's cookbook in my office. I have everything on hand because it's just been so helpful with my migraine patients. It truly is. It really is. And those same type A patients will come back to you and say, oh, I finished the book. And it was like two days. They just yep. sat with it all weekend, it seems, because it was so good for them, you know, especially because when you write something like that, it's relatable. They're like, oh, my gosh, someone actually understands. And I think that's a, a key piece, too, in the care that we provide is just the empathy part of it, you know. Do you have any other upcoming research that you're working on? So, not so much, unfortunately, because I am moving into private practice. So <laughs> Very nice. That has been taking a lot, a lot of time, trying to get the, navigate the whole process, you know, getting credential by insurance, you know, getting location and everything. That is eating up a lot of time, you know, but thank yeah. goodness, more or less settled now. So, you know. I know how that goes. <laughs> So, you know, that one, um, yeah, it's coming soon. So, you know, by um, August, you know, I'll be out of uh, UT in my own practice. I'll still be in Texas. Yep. And it's focusing on, you know, vertigo and migraine. We'll Bill be sure to Dallas. cover that. Yep, Frisco. So just a Frisco. little north of Dallas. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and maybe just to kind of round out our episode, could you just give us a, a little brief overview of what be, what people should bring to maybe their first appointment, um, if they should prepare a certain thing or what they should kind of uh, um, get themselves ready for going into an appointment for vestibular migraine or something, somebody like you or you yourself. Yep. Anything, any time you come with like, you know, vertigo or dizziness, you know, I think the first thing I want to understand and I, you know, want to, you know, hear patients describe to me, what do you feel? You know, what do you mean by dizzy? What do you mean by vertigo? I think because they've seen, many of them, like in your experience, I'm sure, they've seen many different people and they get the labels, dizzy or vertigo, and they start to just use them. Sometimes it's incorrectly used or sometimes, you know, they have more than one symptom and you have to really figure out what's going on. A good example is, you know, if you have, say, vestibular migraine and BPPV, right? 
Um, you know, the mistake that a lot of times will happen is everything gets lumped together. But then, you know, once you start drilling down and you're like, okay, you know, with the vestibular migraine, then, you know, I get this tilting, rocking type of feeling, lasts for a whole day, light sensitive, sound sensitive. And then from time to time, you know, I get this awakened by this spinning that happens, you know, wakes me up from sleep, lasts for a few seconds and then goes away. So, you know, then you're like, okay, you know, you have this. Or the thing that makes it complicated is if they have like, say, MDDS and vestibular migraine. I've seen a quite a large number of patients with that recently and so you know they tell you that they have this constant feeling as if they're on a boat moving around it's better when they are in a moving car but on top of that they also have these episodes where you know the rocking gets much more intense and then some develop you know additional stuff you know spinning you know feeling as if they are falling with the migraine symptoms and they're like ah. Oh, Okay, so you do have, you know, MDDS and you have vestibular migraine. So I think being able to describe the symptoms, you know, is very important. Um, and then, of course, you know, come with your medical records. You know, if you have had like MRIs done, VNGs done, hearing tests done, bring them along. Do you ever recommend patients bring in like a food or a symptom log, like how long the symptoms should last or if they notice that they get any, any symptoms after eating? Um, does that help or does that not matter so much i think the food log it can be a bit confusing at times so you know usually i tell the uh, my patients look at um try to see if there's a pattern so if you eat something and you consistently get you know your, your migraine attack after eating it hmm, that's most likely your food trigger but you know if you just feel a little bit dizzy, a little off, you know, probably not a food trigger. And it can be a little tricky to identify, I think, you know, especially let's say if you have, you know, celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, lactose intolerance on top of that, then, you know, things start to uh, meld together. And so, you know, I think it takes a little, rather than, you know, every single food and you try to figure out what symptom that you have after eating, I think, you know, a general pattern as to, you know, if you eat this yeah, consistently, if I eat, you know, sausages, I get a migraine attack. Mm -hmm. The uh, you know processed meats probably do it for you. If you eat the uh, smelly cheese, you consistently get an attack on the cheese. That's a good point. Yeah, so, very good point. Dr. Bay, you are such a knowledgeable man. I thank you so much for coming on the show. And actually, if you want to hear more of his knowledge, he is on Twitter. What is your... <laughs> handle on twitter <laughs> at dizzy doc at dizzy doc i mean it makes sense perfect name no. <laughs> thank you again for having coming on the show thank, thank you so, so much if you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BP and BB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.